0: Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR Show, where we save you time by providing you the too-long-didn't-read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube with video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Cybersecurity TLDR Show. I am your host, John Good, and this is where we talk about all the different news that's going on in the world for cybersecurity. Now, this is going to be your threat intel briefing for the week of July 31st, 2022 through August 6th, 2022. So we're almost to the end of the year here. So if you are watching on YouTube, make sure to leave us a like and subscribe to the channel and leave us a comment as well. If you have questions, you want to see certain types of content or anything like that. And then also, if you're listening on podcasting platforms, because we are available on all the major platforms So iTunes, Spotify, all that stuff. Uh, Make sure to subscribe or follow us and leave us a review. Let us know how you enjoy the show. If you think there's things that we can do better or anything like that. I love feedback and just overall making the show and the whole production better. So make sure to do that for us as well. So uh, with that being said, the last thing is in the description. You will find a link to the show notes. So if you want to check out the actual articles that we're talking about, see a little bit more about them, then definitely check that out as well. That will be on my website, uh, johngood.com. But again, the link will be in the description. So make sure to check that out as well. So with, uh, without any further delay, let's go ahead and jump into the articles here. So the first article was North Korea-linked Sharptongue spies on email accounts with a malicious browser extension. North Korea-linked actor Sharptongue has been using a malicious extension on Chromium-based web browsers to spy on victims' Gmail and AOL email accounts. The Sharptongues toolset was detailed in a report published by Huntress in 2021. However, in September 2021, Vlexity, uh, Vlexity, Vlexity yep, uh, began observing the use of a previously undocumented malware family in the last 12 months. Lexity has responded to multiple security incidents involving Sharptongue, and in most cases, threat actors used a malicious Google Chrome or Microsoft edge extension tracked as sharp, uh, sharp X. So sharp E X T unlike other extensions used by the Kamuski APT group, sharp, sharp X'd does not try to steal username and passwords. Rather it accesses the victim's webmail account as they browse it. The current version of the extension supports three web browsers and it's able to steal the content of emails from both Gmail and AOL webmail. So, you know, definitely an issue just in general. Whenever you're ex- installing uh, browser extensions or any kind of you know third-party uh, application like that, specifically with the emails, you know that's pretty interesting that they're really kind of just monitoring and seeing what you're doing. It's definitely um, one of those things where it's you know you kind of wonder what they're looking for, right? Like what are they specifically monitoring for? Obviously. You know, a lot of general email traffic is kind of boring. Uh, if it's a work email or a corporate email, obviously it's probably going to be a little bit more interesting as far as a country like North Korea or one of these APT groups uh, concerned. But I guess you can get like serial keys and, you know, some juicy information, stuff like that. You can find better ways to target victims, right? Because if you know what kind of emails that they get and what they open, then that's, you know, definitely good intelligence. Now, the attack process that it lays out here, it says the attack chain starts with attackers manually exfiltrating files required to install the extension from the infected workstation. Once a breach targets Windows system, uh, the attackers replace the browser's preferences and secure preferences. So they start changing some of the settings. Then attackers manually install SharpX using a VBS script. Threat actors enable the dev tools panel within the active tab to spy on the email content and steal attachments from a victim's mailbox. This action is done using a PowerShell script named dev.ps1. So those are the PowerShell scripts, what their extension is. And the attackers also hide warning messages running developer mode extensions. So if you're not familiar with what developer mode is, a lot of browsers and applications, they have this kind of developer mode. And basically it unlocks some different capabilities so you could kind of test things, right? So if you were developing an application and you wanted to test it on your browser, In this case, you could turn on the developer mode, use some of those tools and unlock some of those additional features that you wouldn't really have a use for in normal circumstances. And they're kind of, you know, they're, they're taking advantage of that and they're using it to their, you know, to their benefit to get your attachments and watch your email and things like that. So definitely interesting. Um, it didn't really, uh, at least I didn't see it saying, you know, targeting businesses or individuals. I mean, Gmail and AOL, email accounts, that's probably going to be more likely that they're targeting individuals, right? So end users, and they're trying to get some kind of data, right? They're trying to, trying to maybe plan something, uh, something larger where they can get a bunch of victims. So definitely an interesting read. Next article, we're likely only seeing the tip of the iceberg of Pegasus spyware use against the US. So this is really interesting because we've talked about Pegasus before. Google and internet rights groups have called Congress to weigh in on spyware, asking for sanctions and increased enforcement against the so-called legitimate surveillance makers. During an open uh, open house intelligence committee hearing on Wednesday, US lawmakers heard testimony from Citizen Lab senior researcher John Scott uh, Railton, Sean, uh, Shane Huntley, who leads Google's threat an- uh, analysis group, and uh, Kareen Kanimba. Kani- Kani- whose father was the inspiration for Hotel Rwanda and who has herself targeted, uh, been targeted by Pegasus spyware. This, of course, is now the uh, infamous malware that's developed by Israeli NSO's, uh, Israeli's NSO group. Claims uh, is only that it sold legitimate government agencies, not private companies or individuals. Once installed on a victim system or device, Pegasus can, among other things, secretly snoop On that person's calls, messages, and other activities, and access their camera without permission. NSO also claims that the software can only be used for the purpose of preventing and investigating terrorism and other serious crimes, despite numerous reports from Citizen Lab, Google, and the media of Pegasus being used to spy on journalists, activists, and politicians by their opponents. So, we've seen a lot of news articles about Pegasus. Even on this show, we've had this come up several times. If you go back a few episodes, you'll remember that we talked about L3 Harris, which is a defense contractor here in the United States, who was actually looking at potentially buying Pegasus, right? And acquiring all of that. And, you know, Pegasus continues to be in the news. I think it's in particular because it's, you know, spyware. And a lot of times we see this kind of coming up where individuals, kind of like what it said, like politicians or journalists that are being targeted, right? And this is only supposed to be for countries to, you know, have, but there are either, you know, other people that have this software or some of these uh, governments and countries are misusing this software from what it was supposedly intended to be. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of controversy with kind of spying and monitoring in general, especially from uh, governments and, you know, countries, right. Because it just, you know, A lot of countries don't, uh, they don't accept that. They don't want to be spied on, uh, their, you know, their citizens don't want to be spied on. And so that's part of why we, you know, constantly keep seeing this come up, but it's kind of like what I say every time that we hear about this, this isn't going anywhere. This is going to keep coming up because Pegasus just keeps making headlines, right? They keep, keep showing their face. So I think we'll, we'll continue to see some articles about them. So uh, next article, Akame, we stopped record DDoS attacks in Europe. So Akame, uh, I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right, but Akame Technologies squelched the largest ever uh, distributed denial service DDoS attack in Europe earlier this month against a company that was being uh, constantly or consistently hammered over a 30-day period. According to the cybersecurity and cloud services vendor, the height of the attack hit on July 21 when uh, over a 14-hour period, it peaked at 659.6 million packets per second. So MPPS is the abbreviation for that, and 853.7 gigabits per second, GBPS, right? Uh, Sparling didn't name the targeted company, but said that it is one of their customers in Eastern Europe. Over a 30-day period, the company came under attack 75 times via multiple vectors. The user datagram protocol, UDP, was the most popular vector used in the attack and was seen in the record spikes. Other vectors included UDP fragmentation, ICMP flood, reset flood, send flood, TCP anomaly, TCP fragment, uh, push-ack flood, fin push flood, and push flood. Data scrubbing systems were able to weed out most of the dodgy traffic. So um those in particular like the reset flood uh push act flood these are all you know um options that can be set in data packets so don't really worry too much about that it's just different kinds of you know different kinds of settings basically on there um at least for the context of this article you don't have to really know super in depth you know what that means but uh traffic from the distributed attack suggested that the criminals were leveraging a highly sophisticated global botnet of compromised devices to orchestrate this compa- uh, campaign Sparling wrote no individual scrubbing center handled more than 100 gigabits uh, per second of the overall attack so just think about that that is so much data that is being you know sent towards this victim and you know apparently they were able to stop stop this or stop you know a huge chunk of it to where it didn't make a huge impact and you know i think that's one thing to really think about is some of these companies that really specialize in this. So like uh, content distribution networks or, you know, things like that, like Cloudflare, all those kind of vendors, they really have this significant infrastructure to stop a lot of these mass scale attacks. And I think that as internet of things kind of grows, we continue to get more and more devices, you know, everything gets connected. Then those vendors are obviously going to scale as well. You know, as a, as an individual company, you want to definitely look into one of these services because especially as you start getting traction, I mean, you know, if you're just a a small business or something like that, you know, you're probably not going to have enough resources to stop that many packets, right? It's just how it is. They're going to literally slow down your entire network if they don't crash your entire network. So, you know, just kind of an emphasis point on the capabilities of some of those vendors and how much traffic they can protect uh, you from, right? Especially if you're doing things that are going to irritate people as part of your your, uh, business practice, like what what your product or service is, you know, some are going to attract more attention than others for sure. And I would definitely recommend uh, looking into one of these services. Let's see here. So Australian police charge man with developing software used by more than 14,500 people. An Australian man faces up to 20 years in prison for allegedly creating and distributing spyware that became the subject of a global law enforcement operation. The 24-year-old man, who has not been named by authorities, was arrested by Australian, uh, the Australian Federal Police, AFP, and appeared in Brisbane Court Friday, where he was charged with six counts related to computer offenses. So this was last Friday. Uh, and he um, not this one that just passed, but the one of the previous week. He's accused of creating the imminent uh, monitor remote access Trojans to the rat when he was 15, which authorities say was sold to more than 14,500 individuals across 128 countries. So what was that? Uh, Nearly 10 years, nine years difference, right? The tool was sold for about $25, which was advertised on hacking forms. It's estimated that the creator made between $300,000 and $400,000 from malware uh from selling the malware between 2013 and 2019 when it was taken down as part of a coordinated law enforcement campaign so you know this is an example of uh you know somebody pretty young who is able to create something relatively sophisticated right um chances are that this person you know might have done a lot of this or maybe had help maybe was able to copy some code or something from other places but you know, today we start seeing this kind of uh, ransomware as a service type deal, right? Where, and this is kind of going on a little bit of a tangent, but we start to see where it's becoming easier and easier for anybody to really develop, you know, something that can cause a lot of issues, right? I mean, this was fourteen thousand five hundred individuals, and he created it basically when he was fifteen. That's that's pretty crazy. Um, and made you know, made some decent money from it, frankly. Um, but yeah, that's that's something that we have to be very aware of, because a lot of these tools that are out there, you know, especially today, uh, a kid gets a hold of it, they can do some real damage. So I think that, you know, it, it's definitely something that we have to kind of keep our eyes on, and hopefully. Uh, kind of as the cybersecurity environment and the workforce and everything grows, and we get more people that are educated on cybersecurity, maybe we can start to stop some of these younger people from doing some of this malicious stuff, at least you know earlier on, and uh, kind of get their their superpowers for good, right? Somebody like this that created this, I mean, probably a pretty talented individual, right? And if we can get them to be on the good side, then that you know that can definitely help us, right? So. See, so this next article is pretty interesting. Researchers discover nearly 3,200 mobile apps leaking Twitter API keys. Researchers have uncovered a list of 3,207 mobile apps that are exposing Twitter API keys in the clear. Some of which can be utilized to gain unauthorized access to Twitter accounts associated with them. The Takeovers made possible thanks to a leak of legitimate consumer key and consumer secret information, respectively. Singapore-based cybersecurity firm CloudSec said in a report. Exclusively with uh, Hacker News, and that's where this article came from. Uh, out of thirty, uh, out of three thousand two hundred seven uh, apps, two hundred thirty apps are leaking all four creden- uh, authentication credentials, and they can be used to fully take over the Twitter accounts and can perform any critical sensitive actions. The researcher said. So, if you're not familiar with what API keys are, basically, it's a way to program uh, programmatically interact with applications. Right. So instead of me having to physically log into like Twitter, right in this case, um, an API key can behind the scenes interact with Twitter. So I can build out an application that can pull, still pull in that data, but I can add additional features and things like that that you can do. And so we see you know, a lot of, um, a lot of applications have API keys, right? Like that's a pretty standard development thing, especially with web applications. And so like with this, this would be an API key to allow you to log in and authenticate. And you know, if these applications are leaking these keys, that's pretty dangerous, right? Because then somebody could get into your account theoretically, especially if you don't have two-factor authentication set up. So um, you know, anytime you have an application, uh, you definitely have to be careful as far as where the application came from. If you're in the enterprise, you have to be careful as far as those API keys and how that information is handled, right? Because think about this, if this was a business, would you be safe if your authentication credentials are getting leaked? I mean, that'd be really bad, right? For a consumer account, I mean, it's less bad, because, you know, the the impact is less, right? Um, It's more isolated to you, but, um, you know, that's not a problem just for individuals. That is a problem that exists in enterprise applications. And applications that you would use in your business. So you have to be aware of that. If you're developing applications, you have to use secure uh, coding practices. So you have to make sure that API keys aren't leaked. You have to make sure that they're secure. All that transmission is secure, especially when it's with like authentication, you know, all that kind of stuff should be uh, encrypted and protected and not visible to, you know, the standard attacker. Right. All right. Mobile store owner hacked T-Mobile employees to unlock phones. A former owner of a T-Mobile retail store in California has been found guilty of a $25 million scheme where he allegedly accessed T-Mobile's internal systems to unlock and unblock cell phones. Mm. Uh, Argus D. I I can't even pronounce this name. I'm not even going to try. Uh, 40, a 44 year old allegedly ran a scheme between 2014 and 2019 where he unlocked devices from the cellular networks of their vendor and enabled people to use them with other telecommunications providers this scheme impacted mobile carriers who offer their device these devices to customers at a special price or even free of charge offsetting them uh, offsetting the cost by locking them for uh, some time on their networks so basically what happens is you know, a lot of times when you go buy a cell phone from a vendor, uh, and especially in the United States, a lot of times that vendor will lock that device to their network for a certain period of time. So, um, maybe like two years, because a lot of, a lot of times too, what we have here in the U S is a lot of the cell phone providers, they will, um, they will offer you like a contract and they will subsidize your phone or you'll pay your phone off over like two years or whatever, and so that's basically why they, they lock it to their service because, you know, they want to recoup their costs, right? And they don't want to have you go get a phone, be delinquent on your service and just run off with the phones and profit from that, right? And so that's, that's the whole idea behind it. Now, one of the things that's interesting too with this is that, you know, think about if you have your phone stolen or lost, right? You lose your phone. Well, typically you'll call up your cell phone provider. You'll tell them, hey, you know, my phone is stolen. My phone is lost, whatever. And especially if it's like stolen, they will put it on like a block list. Uh, basically, it's a it's a blacklist of devices, right? So these devices are stolen. They can't be activated. And sometimes, you know, there's some cooperation with providers and things like that and, you know, all kinds of stuff, right? But that's the idea, right? So they get on this list and then you can't activate them. So if I had... Let's say I had Verizon and then I, you know, I found a phone, found a phone, right? <laughs> and then I went to activate it and it was reported stolen and I tried to activate it. It wouldn't activate. I could not use that on my account, even if that was a Verizon phone, right? That, that's the whole idea. But this person actually had access to t mobiles system. They control all that. So they were able to actually take uh, devices off of that list. Now that can be, um, you know, from a monetary standpoint, obviously there is some incentive. If you can do that, it's not right. Right. Like it's not, um, I'm not condoning that, but you know, you could certainly charge for that. And that's what basically this guy did. And, you know, $25 million scheme. That's crazy. That's a lot, right? Uh, he must've been doing this, you know, for a while. I said 2014 to 2019. So, you know, five years. I mean, that's probably a lot of devices. (laughs) 25 million. That's, that's not small chump change, chump change. Right. So definitely interesting. Um, You know, that's where, uh, especially with this, you know, you have to have least privilege. You have to restrict people and their accounts and what they can do. You have to make sure, you know, that access is checked, that you have ways of validating actions, you know, that only authorized people can make changes and stuff like that. And, you know, I mean, T-Mobile, they, they've definitely had some issues just, you know, in the news, especially lately. I mean, this is an issue. They obviously had a big data breach. So I think, you know, by and large, I think T-Mobile has had some issues, not to say that other vendors probably don't have issues too, but they've been in the, in the spotlight a little bit, probably too much, right? So pretty interesting. Uh, EU missile maker MBDA confirms data theft extortion denies breach though. MBDA, one of the largest developer, missile developers and manufacturers in Europe, has responded to rumors about a cyber attack on its infrastructure, saying that claims of a data breach of its systems are false. A statement from the company clarifies that it was the target of a criminal group who spread the news, uh, false news of hacking its information systems in an attempt to blackmail the organization into paying a ransom. Extortionists had acquired MBDA data from an external drive used by the company's Italian division and demanded a ransom to not leak or sell the files. So, you know, definitely a little bit to unpack here. The first thing that comes to mind for me, well, a couple things, right? So an external drive, right? You know, today, the idea of not encrypting your hard drives is just crazy, especially at an enterprise, like, and especially with this kind of data, right? Like you're just crazy if you don't want to encrypt your drives, you know, yes, it can take some work. It can add a little bit to your workflow. And then obviously you got to figure out how to maintain those keys and keep them safe to, you know, decrypt the information. But, you know, I mean, somebody got a hard drive with a bunch of data on it. Most likely not encrypted, right? Just based on this article. That's dangerous, number one. The other thing, too, is when you have other divisions, right? Like other uh, business units in other countries or whatever, you have to have very similar standards, right? Like you have to actually make sure that things are running securely. And obviously, you have to follow the laws and stuff that are in those you know, areas, but you can't just have this other business unit and kind of neglect it or not pay attention to the security of, you know, of that unit. That's just not good. Right. I mean, I'm just saying like, that seems like, you know, pretty common sense that you can't just neglect other locations. But I think, you know, that encryption is, one of the biggest issues probably with that because at least if you have it really encrypted then if somebody finds it somebody steals it they can't use it right now we do have quantum computing remember that we've talked about that that's coming up you know that could change things right like you have to get even more secure encryption but um yeah it sounds like they didn't do a great job as far as protecting data uh, New York regulators slap Robin Hood's crypto business with a $30 million fine. So if you're into cryptocurrency, this is you know definitely a very interesting article. In the latest in what seems to be a st- uh, string of challenges, the company has to grapple with Robin Hood's crypto division has been slapped with a $30 million fine by the New York State Department of Financial Services. It's the first crypto-focused enforcement agent, uh, action by the regulator, which has issued the multi-million dollar penalty against Robin Hood for what it says are violations against the state's uh, anti-money laundering and cybersecurity regulations, the company also failed to transition from a manual monitoring system, which is no longer sufficient now that it's much larger than when it started. In addition, the department found that policies within Robinhood's cybersecurity program aren't in full compliance with official cybersecurity and virtual currency regulations. The New York regular, regulator has mentioned, uh, also mentioned that Robinhood improperly certified compliance with the department's transaction monitoring regulation and cybersecurity regulation. Okay. So, a lot to unpack there, right? If you're familiar with crypto, I mean crypto is going through a really tough time right now, just in general, right? Like all the all the crypto markets. But, you know, you look at a company like Robinhood, Robinhood who has been in the spotlight a lot as well. And you know, I, I would say that I'm, I would say that I'm surprised, but I, I, I guess I'm not entirely surprised because it seems like, you know, when they get in trouble, they get in trouble for things that seem like they should be fixed, right. Or should have been fixed kind of as they grew. And, you know, this is kind of no different in my eyes, but, um, you know, let's, let's look at what this says. So they failed to go to From a manual monitoring system, so to something more automated. I mean, that's kind of you know one-on-one as far as cybersecurity, right? Like you're ingesting so much information from all these different devices, all these different sources. You know, you have to have an automated monitoring system. You can't have somebody going line by line and trying to sort through millions or maybe billions of transaction records or just records in general. You know, a company like Robinhood you know, probably every time you make a transaction, right? Like, so every time you buy some crypto, uh, so if you buy like a dollar worth of crypto, then you buy another dollar worth of crypto, you know, these small transactions, you know, everything in that, like all of those are going to create some kind of record because, you know, you've got to track different things, right? And, you know, to have a manual monitoring system and be that kind of company where, you know, I could understand if you weren't a data centric company, Right, like if you uh, were a manufacturing company where you were very small, you you hardly had any kind of data, you know, that you were storing really, you know, okay, maybe, right, like you could maybe get by with a manual system. It wouldn't be recommended, right? Like we want to go automated as much as possible, especially like with routine kind of things. But you know, a company like Robinhood, they get so many transactions. I wish that I knew how many transactions they got, but I'm sure it's a ton, right? Like, how could it not be? And they still were using manual monitoring. That sounds like trying to be really cheap, right? I could be wrong, right? Like, there's always kinds of different things that could be issues, but that's what comes to mind when I think of that. Uh, And then let's see here. The cybersecurity program policies aren't in full compliance with official cybersecurity and virtual currency regulations. So, anytime you're dealing with any kind of currency, I don't care if it's cryptocurrency. I don't care if it is, um, you know, like dollars or whatever, right? Like the official currency of whatever country, you know, there are more requirements and more restrictions on things that you have to track. And, you know, you have to make sure that you're compliant, right? Uh, there are teams, you know, large teams of compliance individuals in some of these major institutions, right? Like take a, Um, You know, like a Fidelity, a Charles Schwab, a Chase, a Wells Fargo, whatever. You know, they have huge teams of people that are making sure that their policies and things like that are in place and they're compliant, right? And as things change, that they update or replace or whatever, right? To make sure they're compliant. So it feels like, you know, as they grew, they didn't necessarily expand their team or at least, they didn't expand their team with people that were able to execute on some of this stuff because, you know, th- this is serious stuff, right? Like that, I don't know, you know, in the grand scheme of things, 30 million, like what that equates to as far as like their overall revenue, but you know, that's, that's not a small fine, right? Like in the grand scheme of things, I mean, $30 million is $30 million, right? That's a big deal. And, uh, it looks like these New York regulators are really, you know, they're trying to go after them. And I mean, it sounds like they're going to be successful. And if things don't get fixed, you know, there's going to be more fines and things. So compliance is a really interesting area to get into. If you're ever interested in it, uh, I would definitely check it out. You know, there's a lot of people that break into cybersecurity into compliance first. Uh, but, you know, especially in today's world, there's more and more compliance requirements and things like that that are coming up that are getting implemented and enforced. and you know, privacy things are coming along, and you know it's just a really good area to get into if that kind of thing interests you, right? And the money's good too, right? There's a lot of good-paying jobs in that area because look at this—you know, thirty million dollars because they didn't do some stuff, right? Chances are, you know, companies, even like Robinhood, I bet getting fined thirty million dollars probably didn't feel all that great. So I bet they're probably going to be looking at hiring some more security people specifically in compliance, I bet to try to take care of some of this stuff. Right. So that's my thought. We'll, uh, (laughs) you know, we'll kind of see, right. Because just because something like that happens does not mean that it's going to get fixed. doesn't mean it. Sorry, but we'll see. Flashpoint says it's VulnDB records vulnerabilities uh, that MITRE CVE missed. Cyber threat intelligence company Flashpoint said in a report issued this week that it detected a total of 11,860 vulnerabilities in the first half of 2022, with almost a third of them missed or not detailed by the public MITRE CVE, the Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures D- uh, Database. The report's uh, state of vulnerability intelligence includes disclosures. Security vulnerabilities in hardware and software products reported by vendors and cybersecurity experts collected by Flashpoint's in house vulnerability intelligence database, VulnDB. Flashpoint said that there's a huge discrepancy in the severity and classification of vulnerabilities that are reported by VulnDB and those that are recorded by MITRE's CVE database and the NVD database maintained by the NIST, so the National Vulnerability Database, and that's maintained by the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technologies, that's NIST uh, NIST and MITRE coordinate their finding and report similar vulnerabilities. Flashpoint caution organizations to depend on comprehensive and specific sources for a clear understanding of vulnerability, the vulnerability landscape. So, you know, like a lot of things, you have to use multiple sources. This is just a a good example of why you need to do that. Because if you're relying on a single source for all your threat intelligence, then you're probably going to be missing certain things. You know, will it be a lot? Will it be a little? We don't know, right? Like, it depends on the different sources and things like that. But you know, they're saying that a third of, of what they had weren't covered. So I don't know what that is—almost four thousand vulnerabilities, right? That's a pretty substantial miss, right? And you know, it could be that, you know, I mean, I guess there's a mil- you know a bunch of reasons, right, why they they didn't include them, but um, I mean, that's, that's a lot, right? So I would definitely recommend using multiple sources so that, um, you know, so that you don't miss things. Right. So, well, that is the last article for this threat until briefing. Uh, again, check the description. There'll be link, uh link to the show notes. You'll be able to check out all, all the articles. If you're interested in reading more. Uh, this was your threat until briefing for July 31st, 2022 through August 6th, 2022. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to leave a liking, uh, like, and subscribe to the channel as well as leaving a comment. And, uh, also if you are listening on the podcasting platforms, because we are on podcasting platforms and you can listen there as well, but make sure to subscribe and leave us a review too. let us know how we're doing. And, uh, with that being said, that's going to be it for this week and I hope you have the rest a good rest of your weekend and I'll see you next time.